Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. My guest today is Eugene Lambert, whose debut novel is the science fiction thriller The Sign of One. It's set in a near-future dystopian world where many, many identical twins are born but are separated because one is considered a monster and the other is not. Who gets to decide, though? The Sign of One was shortlisted for the AM Heat's Irish Children's Prize 2013 and the Bath Novel Award 2014. Eugene, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Well, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for interviewing me. So what's the elevator pitch for The Sign of One? What was your very initial idea for it? And how did you go about making that into what the book then became? Um, well, I, my, my first thought was, I am an identical twin myself, you see. Um, so I've had a lifetime experience of that. And I, I, there was just one, I was trying to come up with an idea for a novel. And it just occurred to me to, you know, because you, you occasionally hear people say, you know, which one's the evil twin? Like it's a joke, and it just occurred to me to wonder: could there be a situation where their, you know, twins were genuinely considered evil? Um, so my, my, basically, my kind of elevator pitch when I was telling, which uh, is about it, that it was a science fiction story, a twins are evil story with a twist, basically. Now, your lead characters, Kyle and Sky, both very different, both very human, relatable in many ways. Did they come to you quite whole, as it were, or did you have to go sort of searching for them? Um, I think Kyle certainly came very quickly and very easily. One thing I was determined to do was to to write a book where the, the main protagonist was real. You know, he, so he, you know, as, as a teenage boy, you know, I wanted him to behave like a teenage boy. I wanted him to feel fear because I think that there is there's a few books out there where the the, the, the protagonist they're just being a hero comes too easily, and I think he, in essence, you know, there's a lot. I suppose you could say there's a lot of me in Kyle. The Sky character really just demonstrates the mysteries of kind of writing because she she came quite quickly but but I wouldn't say I knew where really but she she just emerged and and um it was just fun actually kind of um especially in the early parts of the book um you know that they don't really get along and so writing that kind of um they're forced to get along to kind of survive but writing that kind of bickering relationship which is great fun really now, you're saying there's a, a little bit of you in Kyle, a little bit, or a lot of you, and, you know, are there people you know who have played parts in your book? Of course, you don't have to name them, because, you know, then you might get in trouble. Mm. Um, no, I say there's a fair bit of, of me in Kyle, um, and I think that's uh, that, that often happens, especially in a debut novel. Um, I, some of the other characters, yeah, there's one or two of them. I, I definitely was uh, inspired by people I've met on my journey through life, but, uh, yeah, as you say, I wouldn't want to name them. Which of the two between Kyle and Sky would you want to run away from tyrannical authorities with? Um, I th- yeah, I think Sky possibly. I, th- I think Sky because um, she would, she would, uh, she's kind of a little bit more ruthless, shall we say, yeah. than than Kyle, and so she's, uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I would perhaps compliment her skills, but she would uh, certainly be uh, she's capable of taking care of business. Would you get along with her? Do you like her? Uh, that's a good question. Actually, that's a very good question. I I do like I do like Sky, but then, obviously, as the author, I kind of know why she's why she is the way she is. So I can perhaps, you know, feel a little bit more sympathy for her. But I think anybody who got to know Kyle would end up liking her. Yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about the world building in this novel. Um, coming up with this sort of wrecked world, coming up with this world that has all sorts of issues that are still carrying on because, you know, humans, we're like cockroaches. We will always survive no matter what. Where did you where did you come up with this particular world? Do you have sort of favorite dystopias that you thought of, that you leaned on to create this? Um, yeah, I, I, I one book, um, which well, one series of books which definitely inspired me was Patrick Ness's The Chaos Walking Trilogy. Right. And I just, and I've always enjoyed, even you remember there was an old British TV series called Survivors. I've always enjoyed stories which are, I mean, I think the words actually dystopia is kind of slightly overused describing books. M- most science fiction novels are set in, in, in dystopias or, or worlds that are a little bit less fun or dysfunctional. Um, but I did, I did like the idea, especially in today's world, you know, I thought it was a bit topical to write about a world which was a dump world where, Basically, the people who were the unwashed and the unwanted, the kind of criminals and refugees, were just dumped because they could be exiled there and forgotten. Now, you, t- you talked earlier about an elevator pitch. I, I described it a few times as uh, kind of a, an old Australia in space where you, t- you could just take people a long way away, dump them and forget them. Right. Now, as you mentioned, you're one of uh, a pair of identical twins. Have you and your brother ever worked out which of you is the evil one or does it all depend on you know, who decides what evil really means? Well, of course, neither of us are truly evil, but um, we would each... That's, each that's what an evil convinced. person would say, right? Well, that's exactly. That's what an evil each twin us, would each say. Us make, each of us makes a very convincing case for why the other one is the evil one, and there's perhaps <clears throat> ample evidence on both sides. We, we, ha- we each have our moments, but I would say no. I mean, I think he's more evil than I am, shall we say. Now, you were one of the fortunate ones who snagged an agent while you were still writing this uh, book at uh, an MA for children's writing, am I right? That's, that's, that's right, yeah. 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 So this, of course, means that you didn't have to query this current novel, The Sign of One, and, of course, being shortlisted for an award prior to publication is, you know, rare and very cool. Does it ever feel like it was almost too good to be true? You know, everything happened in a bit of a blur, and you're still trying to figure out, you know, how this happened? Well, uh, well, kind of yes and no, and, and I'll kind of answer both in turn. But the win, winning the competition, or shortlisted for the competitions, was a massive help, and, and, and being obviously on the MA, which raises your profile, was a massive help in terms of securing my agent, because my agent Ben Ellis at the Ben Ellis Agency, he he was very proactive. So he kind of he he monitors kind of competitions, and then saw that I'd been shortlisted, which was a further reason to kind of take a look at the book. Um, but then, although everything happened very quickly, it was also slightly problematic because. At the end of the MA course, uh, a big uh, an anthology uh, is produced featuring everybody's work, and then you all the major agents in Britain gather to um, meet the all the authors and potentially offer them representation. So I got my offer maybe a couple of months before that, but it was it was an offer you know one offer where potentially you know maybe I would get a better offer at the at this event maybe not. So I had to kind of make that. Um, so although it was very, very gratifying to get the offer, it, it was a certain amount of stress because I thought, you know, I had to make the decision. I couldn't really put Ben off for two or three months, whatever it was. And um, But no, it, it's, all, it's all worked out for the best. And it certainly, yes, I didn't have to go through that stress of um, endlessly submitting the manuscript. I, I had previously done that, though, with a manuscript which is now residing in one of my drawers, which is what got me onto the MA programme from there. Is that ever going to see the light of day again? Oh, I would hope so. Oh, you yeah. do? It's, it's not one of those, oh, never burn it, never let me, you know, uh, oh, release all, it to the all. world. I mean, uh, well, no, not at all. Because what I actually did was, um, after I'd finished the sign of one, 
to take a little bit of a break, I, I rewrote that with my first kind of unpublished uh, novel with everything I learned on the MA program. And um, it's just basically right now I have to focus on uh, this science fiction trilogy, but I'd love to come back to um, the other book. Now, you didn't really have a straight path to writing, though, did you? I believe you veered off course and you were, was it an engineer for some time? That's right. I kind of worked in um, kind of science and technology for maybe 15, 16 years. Wow. Okay. And then to go back to university couldn't have been easy. Um, actually, it was, though. It really was because from from day one, it was such good fun. I mean, the, the people I I was very lucky that all the people on my course were, were loved, delightful and easy to get along with, as were the tutors on the course. And it was something I really wanted to do. Um, so... And I've already, quite frankly, I've got form on the academic front. I've already, I've had two degrees before that. So this is degree number three. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Was the very young Eugene Lambert always going to end up a writer, though? Um, or a storyteller, I, I, shall we say? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. That. I remember we were asked, actually, kind of, um, we were asked that question on the MA course. And some people have very clear answers. I, I, I wouldn't. But, but what I would say, though, is from a very early age, and I think also having an Irish background, you grow up in an environment where everybody loves telling stories and anecdotes. And uh, my brother and I, we used to uh, make up stories together. We'd each take turns to, you know, say a few, like a, a line or a paragraph. And we'd build right. up in, in imaginary worlds and whole stories doing that. So possibly, but, but I, never, I never really, I, I, I suppose that the height of my ambition maybe 10 years ago was to just write a few short stories and get them published. But then, I don't know, it's suddenly, I don't, I don't really know where the kind of wanting to write a novel came from. No, when you you've written short stories before, yes, is that was that a first love? Would you go back to that? Uh, no, to be honest, I, I, I now that I've kind of discovered novel writing, I, I, I prefer that. I mean, short story writing is an incredible skill and takes a certain kind of mind. Um, I mean, I, I may go back to it if 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 the, if the story occurred to me, but but I, I really want to to focus on writing longer material now. Yeah, what were your childhood reading tastes like? versus the ones you have right now? Have you sort of kept up the same literary heroes? Do you go back to any books you first read when you were, you know, maybe a teenager? Oh, I, I certainly do, yes. Um, I mean, I, I read widely, actually, um, but but mainly kind of um, adventure stories, whether they were science fiction or one, one favourite was um, Rosemary Sutcliffe was a favourite author, The Eagle of the Ninth, so kind of historical adventure stories. Um, but one thing in particular, my brother and I, we both, we went through an, an extended phase. We loved um, pulp science fiction from the kind of 1920s, 30s and 40s. So that's, um, that was our first kind of love. And then we kind of moved on to more modern material. Was there ever a point in your life when you weren't reading, say, science fiction fantasy? Um... Not really. I, I couldn't say I ever went off it, really. I, I think good... I mean, I I, prefer, I would say that I prefer science fiction to fantasy, but a good fantasy... I mean, one of my favourite um, fantasy novels ever, of course, Lord of the Rings, right. or any of Alan Garner's material. But science fiction, I just think it's it's that kind of sense of wonder, that kind of worlds that, you you know, you get a glimpse of, but obviously you can't go to, and that kind of... A good science fiction book leaves you with a feeling of kind of almost yearning and wishing, wishing you could, you know, we could step beyond that little world. Yeah. Is there an ideal science fiction book that you think is just, you know, something you wish you could have written or something you'd aspire to write the quality of? Mm. Well, well, one, I must admit, if, if, if the, um, I'm trying to think, Mortal Engines series. Have you read them? No, I haven't. 
by uh, Philip Reeve. Now they're probably for slightly younger readers, and, and it, basically they have a series. You know, it's again it's dystopian, post-apocalypse, and um, London as cities have gone mobile, and they kind of they chase each other around and, and kind of try and feast on each other's. That sounds I mean, fantastic. I mean, it, that really is just almost flawless. I would say it's it's just brilliant stuff. All right. So, what kind of apocalypse would you personally best survive? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I bet you've well, thought about this. Everyone's thought about this. Well, it could be a topical question as well. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I think um, if there was a kind of sudden breakdown in society, uh, you know, I think some of the things I've done in, in the past would, you know, was, was, and I'm still probably young enough that uh, I, I reckon I'd stand a chance of surviving. But, but one of the problems, of course, is that in those scenarios, you might have to do some very unpleasant things to survive. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure I'd be as capable of that as Sky would be, for example. Sure, but I mean, you know, she's not real, you are. So tell me, what kind of apocalypse? Pick one. Ooh, maybe a, cl a kind of climate apocalypse. Fair enough. And which would you never survive, ever? Absolutely not, no way. <laughs> Zombie apocalypse. Right, I had a feeling that was coming. Because <laughs> that would yeah. require a lot of killing, wouldn't it? Oh, almost 24-7. Right. Knock heads off with shovels and things. That could get really tiring, I have to admit. Yeah. What do you, you miss one and then chomp. Yeah. But, you know, I always feel I'm not a... I don't read so much zombie fiction. I mean, there's some stuff that, uh, you know, stands out. But overall, I don't, I don't read as much zombie fiction because I always feel like zombies are really a fairly boring adversary. I'm sure I've said this before on the podcast um, oh. because I feel like they're fairly slow and they kind of moan and moan and lurch here and there. And I always feel like you can, you know, they're not very sentient. So I like my adversaries to have, you know, slightly more going on in the head than just a basic desire to eat other people. So I always feel like one could survive a zombie apocalypse because it just requires physical brute strength, nothing else. But then you think about how tiring that would be. Like you could never yeah. sleep. No, although I think possibly that um, zombies are going to hang around, you know, major kind of food areas, basically. So one possibility was it would be hiding. I mean, the zombies aren't going to hike through Cumbria right. looking for somebody <laughs> to munch. So maybe that's your best bet is actually rather than locking their blocks off, it might be just finding some place where you can kind of have some sort of subsistence agriculture, someplace hidden and difficult to get to. Yeah, I figure they can't climb mountains either, right? No, I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, you wouldn't. Maybe, or maybe, maybe they're not so good at kind of crossing it. You know, maybe the Isle of Man or something like that. Yeah, although I think there was one of the Living Dead movies in which George Romero did have a bunch of zombies figure out that they actually won't drown, and so they walked, I don't oh. know, to like from Staten Island, maybe somewhere they walked across some like body of water. Maybe mm. I'm completely wrong about the city it was in, but I remember this. Scene. No, zombies can be, they can be very irritating in that respect. They can, they can. Now, I know the sign of one is the first book of a trilogy. Was this story always going to be a trilogy? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, I, one thing I personally uh, don't like in trilogies, or rather, well, I, I, I think every book should kind of stand alone to a large extent. They right. should be self-contained stories. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can pick up book two without having written book, read book one and get everything from it, because I think that's just almost impossible to achieve. But, but I still think that one thing I, I don't like is when suddenly book one ends on a massive cliffhanger and you have to then go out and buy book two. Or you have to wait for book two. Well, that's right. I mean, yeah, for the first kind of, say, generation of readers, as the books are being written, they have to wait for book two. And it's just, it's just not satisfying. And I, and I would point the finger slightly out there at... Um, 
I shouldn't do this actually, but uh, <laughs> Patrick Ness's um, Chaos Walking trilogy, which are utterly brilliant. Yeah. But the first book, I mean, I know people who threw it across the wall, you know, threw it across the room because it ends so abruptly. But you forgive him because he's Patrick Ness and he's kind of brilliant. Well, that's right, he's a genius <laughs> and it's a brilliant story. So yeah. of, still, you know, um, I just think they should be... So, so anyway, I wrote the first book, pretty much standalone, but, but as I was approaching the end, of course, you know, that's when it's very kind of mysterious, especially when you compare it to my previous employment or, or you know, discipline of working as an engineer. It's very kind of mysterious, but suddenly... It's almost like um, archaeology, and as you're scraping away, the story emerges, and more potential stories emerge. And it occurred to me how the story could continue. So I kind of I wrapped the book up, I think, fairly completely, but but then left it open so that we could continue. You might want to see what happened next. And so when I had the meeting with Egmont and Stella Paskins, my lovely editor, I she immediately asked me, "So have you had thoughts about maybe a book two and a book three? And I was able to talk reasonably lucidly about what that what they could be. And you're, of course, uh, on book two now. Have you written book two? I have written the first draft of book two, and I am um, now engaged in um, hacking it back to a more reasonable size and improving the quality. And, yeah, so kind of, I'm, I'm on my basically the second draft now. And do you still like the characters, spending another oh, book, another two books with them? I, I, I certainly do, actually. I certainly do. But, but I must do. It's a good question, though, because I remember, I remember reading about um, Arthur Conan Doyle and thinking, why would he want to kill off Sherlock Holmes? Right. And I can now, I can now slightly relate to that in the sense that if, you know, seven years down the road, you, you certainly would be. Sure. Ten- well, I mean, you could say the same for George R. R. Martin. You know, I feel like he gets sick of somebody. He just, yeah, gets rid of them, too. Well, yeah, well, he's come up with the ultimate solution, which is that he basically just kills them all off. Yeah, why not? I mean, at some point, you know, <laughs> they're yours, right? You get to do what you want with them at some level. No, um, so what's all this about flying hand gliders? Are hand gliders when you strap yourself to some wings and essentially jump off a cliff face? Am I getting that right? Those are hand gliders, but that's not what I do. I, I fly proper gliders, full, full-size kind of aircraft. They don't have an engine. What does that mean? What are proper gliders? Explain this to me because I genuinely don't know the difference. Okay, well, well, imagine um, like a regular light aircraft, but with much, much um, wider wings, much, much bigger wingspan, but no engine. And they're launched into the air by a, essentially a winch. So a winch pulls them up into the same way you'd pull a kite up into the air, but this is a right. V8 engine a mile away with lots of cable. It pulls you up into the air. You go up at about 45 degrees, then it releases you, and you can fly around. And the idea is to, is to basically mimic a buzzard. So if you can find rising air and you turn in that, Right. And you can you can soar up into the end. Just literally on Sunday, I'm I'm an instructor in these aircraft, and I was flying a member of the public, about a 13 year old boy, and we went up to 5,700 feet, 5,750 feet in thermal strong lift, and oh, the views and everything it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, so you basically strap yourself into a pair of wings with a small engine, and you kind of ha- like I don't I don't know what the word for it is. You kind of put yourself in a catapult and have yourself thrown off into the air. Yeah. Yes, apart from the fact there's no engine. So you, oh, there's no engine, okay. Yeah, and then you have no engine and you're basically flying around trying yeah. to find lifts so that you can climb higher so and go cross country. This is basically what's, what paragliding is. Yeah, they, they, do, they, they do pretty much the same, apart from, as you say, they're just doing it under a parachute and they, they do you know, jump off cliffs and things. Yeah, because they, I, I mean, I've done that once in, in a valley in Nepal, but obviously I don't know how to, so I was strapped to an instructor and there was a bunch of wings and he had a little meter that told him when the wind currents would change. Exactly, and yeah. they made you run and keep running till your feet didn't basically, you know, you were jumping off the cliff. 
essentially or running down a mountain and you kind of hooked yeah. onto this this gust but it was kind of it was the closest feeling a human being i think will ever have to actual flying oh absolutely it's literally like being a bird and especially in a in a, in a modern really sensitive glider it's almost like those wings are extensions of your shoulder and you can some often um i've been flying around in a thermal and i've been joined by a buzzard and a buzzard will literally come in there and he'll fly around with you because he's he's just used you to see where the lift is right and, and conversely if i see a buzzard in the distance i'll fly to them because they they really know what they're doing i mean it's, I, <laughs> I would I hope they do in, yeah i'd recommend everybody to have a go at it it really is incredibly good fun but with an instructor or, you know, with many Oh, yeah, lessons. you have to. Before you learn, flying them around in the air is actually relatively easy. Takeoffs and landings, more complicated. I'm sure. Now, so we know you've got book two out next year and, of course, the third after that. So we know what's, you know, exciting and new for you uh, for the next, what, year and a half? Year or so that you're, you're, yeah, you're locked part, down? Yeah, best part of two years, I'd say. Yeah. So what's the new sort of exciting thing that you've discovered recently? Books, films, TV, somebody else's something new and exciting that you're, uh, you know, sort of going out of your way to spend time with or watch or read? Well, recently um, I, I discovered um, the series. It was on Amazon Prime, actually. But um, I discovered a, a TV series, which I think was made in America, but um, Man in the High Castle. That's right. The Philip K. Dick book that was, uh, I haven't yet seen that TV series. I heard a lot of good things about it. What did you think? Absolutely, one of the best things I've ever seen in terms of the characterization, the plot. Because a lot of these things, especially in you know Hollywood movies, the plot sometimes just they just it doesn't hang together, but they get away with it because there's so many explosions and action and, and special effects and so forth. But everything in this was just perfect. It, it really was, and the ending I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but it was it really was. It was thought provoking, beautifully filmed, great dialogue, humor, outstanding. All right, so, so what's uh, basically working my way towards the end of that? Yes. <laughs> so what's uh, what's next for you after these books? Do you have an idea? Are you one of those writers who sort of got you know three works in progress? You already know what your next bunch of ideas are going to be, or are you just going to take a break for a while and uh, see what happens? Yeah, well, that's looking a little bit into the future, but um, and I, I'm, no, I'm certainly not one of those authors who's got you know 17 works in progress. I I I, I consider that remarkable. But um, well, no, well, you mentioned my. Um, unpublished book which got me onto the MA and I would quite like to go back to that but that, that isn't science fiction it's more of a historical adventure story so. Do you plan on continuing to write for young adults and children is this what you've decided you're going to do or you've not locked yourself down in any way uh, No I think uh, that, I mean that wasn't a conscious decision it's just the kind of writing I naturally do and so I, I, I can see myself continuing probably I, I might move, say, from young adults to middle grade, but I, I can't. I think I'd stick at that, really. It seems to be my metier. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to the next book and seeing what comes after that. Thank you so much for uh, recording with me today. No, you're welcome. I hope you, I hope you enjoy the rest of the sign of one. I will indeed. Thank you. All right. Take care.